no Mickey show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. It is Femme Friday, July 30th. It's a million degrees pretty much everywhere. My ankles are sweating. Parts of my body that I, my, my knuckles are sweating. I didn't know these earlobes were sweating. Like there's that sweat drip that goes from your nose and like somehow drips down your stomach. And you're like, okay, <laughs> that's the state of heat right now, uh, climate change. Uh, I think we're gonna have to start a segment called what is the state of climate change? Because there's so many, uh, it's like the climate change report. Like what is the climate change uh, crisis that's happening today in your neck of the woods? Uh, in our neck of the woods, there's a fire just a couple of miles north of where I am, a forest fire, of course, a wildfire uh, broke out. It's it's common in, in these parts, uh, but it is also extremely dangerous as we know um, from understanding forest fires and uh, and, and, and wildfires, forest fires, what are we like? You can, you too can prevent forest fires. You too can prevent climate change. Um, so I want to talk to you guys today about our favorite Senator who just wants to have all the power to hold up democracy. I mean, there's a certain type of narcissism. Socio it's, I think it's a form of sociopath, like to in this moment with all the crises that we're facing and with and a left that is becoming, and a center left even, that is becoming more and more frustrated uh, with attacks on things by the right, right, uh, the far right, like, you know, voting rights, things that were never controversial, or, or an infrastructure bill. An infrastructure bill 20 years ago was not a left-right issue. It wasn't a far-left-right issue. It wasn't a far-left-center-left issue. It was a bipartisan issue. Yeah, you fund your roads. Everyone's got to take them. Everyone's got to receive goods. Uh, yeah, you know, the gas tax shouldn't be something that's controversial. I mean, big companies, especially who are transporting goods across the country every single day, you know, the gas tax is a normal way to fund infrastructure. But now we all know that the money is there. And when we need to go and dig in and get the money, it's there. We don't question these things. I mean, I'm like on repeat. Everyone's on repeat. I feel like it's the same meme over and over and over again. You know, when we have to fund another missile, no one says, well, where's the money for that? And surely Kirsten Cinema doesn't say that because she has Raytheon in her own backyard. She's also kowtowing to the small businesses. But what I don't understand is why she's so afraid of the infrastructure bill. Why it is so dangerous for the citizens of her, the constituents of Arizona to have Bridges that don't fall apart and roads that don't have potholes in it. This is such a popular bill. What is going on in her mind other than power? Other than total power? Well, it turns out just this week, although it's been uh, questioned, their uh, fellow Democrats of Joe Manchin have come out and criticized him by booing him, actually booing him on the Senate floor. All right, so here uh, is what's happening with Kirsten Cinema. She's so drunk on power or delusional or complete utter sociopath. And I don't feel like this is controversial at this point because you have people like Reverend Barber and Jesse Jackson and center left, the center left uniting with the left protesting her in Arizona. It ain't a good look. It ain't a good look. And I think the only thing that she has on her side is time. The fact that she is not up for re-election, but Mark Kelly is up for re-election, even though he just won a, a special election. 
the timing of it is he is up for re-election uh, next year already. Oh my God. And, and she still has you know, a few more years. So maybe she's thinking she can just buy the time, hold up democracy, block the end of the filibuster, hold up civil rights legislation, anything she can just to maintain power and barter and get whatever she can out of it. I don't know what you're going to get out of this. You're not going to be president, Kirsten Cinema. You're not going to be the leader of the Senate, Kirsten Cinema. Surely not with a rising progressive demographic who is definitely going to be putting in more Senator Warnock's in office and fewer Kirsten Cinemas in office. So what does she want other than the immediate satisfaction of being someone who feels like they're in control or has power over others? Well, this sociopath senator, and that's a lot to be said because most senators are sociopaths probably or at least extreme narcissists, says that she's more concerned with her vacation plans and she is pressuring Senator Schumer to hurry up and get through these negotiations because she's got some important vacation coming for her. Now, listen, I'm somebody who's been working on the road, working on the road, it's important to say. Yes, I am in Greece. I am not a senator. And even being in Greece with my family, undergoing a medical treatment on top of it, I am still airing this show because the crisis is so severe right now that at least in my mind, I can't sit on the sidelines even for a minute. She lives, I I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say at this point. We are literally melting down. Our Republic is melting down and Kirsten Sinema is saying, hurry up. And oh, by the way, I don't support Joe Biden's package at all. She wants to be the most important person in the room, but she's not. She's proving to be the most insane person in the room. And I use that very, carefully, I use that term. She needs an intervention. And I am really hoping that there are some senators who are booing Joe Manchin, who are seeing that they are not on the right side of history and they don't want to be associated with this, that they are willing to put the pressure because there's, there's something, it's one thing for people to protest outside of your house, for mere constituents to protest outside of your house. It's another thing for your colleagues in the Senate who won't sit down with you at the lunch table. Everything's high school in the end. Everything is high school in the end. What is it going to be a table at Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema? Are they going to go sit down with, you know, Mitch McConnell and uh, I don't know, Carly <laughs> Republicans? I'm just trying to think of what Republicans would sit down with. I don't think any Republicans would sit down with them because they don't want to be seen with Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. It's absolutely ridiculous. They're playing to the public stage, but really they're playing to what they think their donors want. But here's the trick: I don't think this is something that their donors want. And we have to get out of that mindset. This is just pure political narcissism at this point. Maybe they made a deal with Biden. Maybe they made a deal with the Democrats. I don't know who they made a deal with to be the scapegoat. Maybe that is true. But at the end of the day, these are human beings. And these are human beings who do feel pressure. You don't think that that George W. Bush, when he was going through those crowds, driving through crowds of people, throwing eggs at him in the car and booing him, you don't think he felt that? You don't think he saw that? Obviously, Donald Trump feels it because he starts going on attack against them. He's so vulnerable that he just has to be so defensive and go on attack. And she's acting like they don't exist. Or she's putting out these like coded social media posts, like she's a you know real housewife of the Senate with her you know thirst trap social media posts. You know, fuck the haters on her ring or whatever it was. You are a senator. 
You are a senator at a time when the republic is spiraling out of control. When democracy is in crisis, when the last president has completely devastated, ripped apart any sort of institutional support that we had for our democracy, anything that could potentially help us get through, uh, you know, our progressive legislation through. We have the opportunity right now to actually do some big things that progressives really didn't have on the table before, unfortunately, this crisis that Joe Biden is forced to actually deal with. Joe Biden is forced to show his cards and say, actually, we do have the money. We can't put it into infrastructure. We can't put it into schools. We can't put it into reinstating basic civil rights, but she's on the wrong side. She's on the wrong side of history. She is literally leading us to our demise. And so is Joe Manchin. Because I don't want to make this just about Kirsten Cinema, but I think that the, the excuses that they make that their constituencies want this, um, I'm going to guess that if you poll their constituencies, these are two states that had, uh, these are two red states that had uprisings, two red states where teachers in their states, West Virginia and Arizona, organized and rose up to make sure that their teachers got full pay, fair pay. I don't think that these are states that they think are so red or so pro-business or so whatever's in their mindset, whatever their excuses are. These are states where union workers and teachers who are the number one donors to the Democratic Party, who are overwhelmingly progressive, with the voters of the National Teachers Union supported Bernie Sanders. I'm going to guess that they support things like Medicare for all, that they support things like making sure that there are civil rights and voting rights that Lyndon Johnson signed. I'm going to guess that they want to make sure that their roads work, especially on those windy West Virginia roads. How do they transport that coal? This is very serious. And we as Democrats need to start in progressives, excuse me, not just Democrats, but it is important to say it to Democrats, whoever, whichever Democrats are watching right now, if you are watching, we as progressives also have to speak to Democrats because Kirsten Sinema answers to Democrats. She doesn't, that's a, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I have to tell you this. She doesn't answer to progressives. She answers to Democrats. And if Democrats are embarrassed by her, but don't have the chutzpah, don't feel supported or whatever it is, because they're so conditioned by neoliberalism that they're frozen in their conditioning, that they don't know how to react in these times, but they too are disgusted by the moves of, of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, then they need to realize and feel as if it is safe for them to call Kirsten Cinema out. And it's happening little by little by little, but not fast enough. So I'm sorry, Kirsten Cinema, who, you know, just like I do, she did an internship at a vineyard. She loves wine. I love wine. I'm going to a vineyard this weekend with my mother for her birthday. Okay, I love it. I am not willing <laughs> to let my love for wine wreck this country. So Kirsten Cinema put the wine glass down, open up, I don't know, the Republic, and remember what you are there to do. This is not cosplay. It's not cosplay democracy. You have a responsibility, you have a duty. Not just to Arizonans, not just to your small business base, not just to the, to the Chamber of Commerce in Arizona or the Koch brothers or Eric Prince or whoever is really behind you. You have a duty to the entire country and to the future of this country to make sure that we're able to battle climate change, to make sure that we have the infrastructure and the jobs so people can get back to work. Because let me tell you something, even if I'm the one who's going to lead the charge, you are going to be held responsible for holding up the resurgence of this economy, 
We have an opportunity right now to make sure people are back to work. We have an opportunity right now to fully fund our public schools. We have an opportunity right now to rebuild the infrastructure, to have a green infrastructure, and to do whatever we can to fight climate change, which is already here. We have an opportunity, and you have an opportunity. You are in a state right now that is out of water. Let me tell you, when your constituents in Phoenix and Tucson, whether Democrats, Republicans, small business people are not immigrants, not Trump voters are not, when they realize that they have no water and someone brands you as the person who held up whatever could have been done to make sure that there was water, whatever cosplay, sociopathic, uh, uh, narcissistic experiment you're playing right now is not going to work. It's not going to work. You're not going to be able to escape to Northern California and retire at a vineyard because that vineyard's probably also going to be out of water. And I know you know about wine, and I know you know that there are several grape varietals right now that are in danger of not, no longer existing because of climate change. So if you like your wine, Kirsten Cinema, show up to work and defend democracy. All right, we have a wonderful show today. <laughs> <laughs> she always gets me riled up. Uh, very excited because so much of this, I, I, ugh, I mean, the right just keeps getting further right. And, and progressives, you know, we really have to out-organize. We don't have the money, so we have to out-organize. But uh, QAnon, so much of this has come from that space of QAnon, QAnon. And we have Dr. Mia Bloom and Dr. Sophia Moskalenko on today to talk about uh, their book called pastels and pedophiles inside the mind of QAnon. It's super fascinating. And then later we're going to talk to Kim Kelly. She's of course a labor reporter. Uh, she's a book that's coming out pretty soon. Uh, very excited to get a sneak peek of her book. And then after that, we have a panel with Hadas Thier and Kate Willett to talk about what's happening in the news. It's Femme Friday. So all of it's going to have a little femme angle. Uh, of course, it's the Olympics. So we're going to discuss that as well. But thank you to you all. Make sure that you are liking and subscribing. And if you are not already, join us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Join at any level. It helps. I mean, listen, the show's on the road right now. It's been on the road. We're doing this. We're not, we're not quitting. This is like happening. There's no vacation. Unfortunately, I wish there was, <laughs> I think all of us wish there were vacations. Uh, but unfortunately, the algorithm likes to beat us to death because that's capitalism because capitalism is called monopoly. It's not your small business capitalism, this, this pseudo capitalism that, that uh, you know, Kirsten Cinema thinks she's part of. No, it's it's monopoly capitalism. So we are so, 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 so grateful to all of our patrons. And if you have it, uh, a few extra bucks in your pocket and you're willing to contribute each month, it really makes a huge difference. If you can't this month and you can next month, we can always work things out. Email us at the Nomi Key Show at gmail.com. And of course, final plug, make sure to check out the committee program on Monday, airing at 3 p.m. Eastern. Arun, is, Arun Chowdhury uh, is the host and he has an amazing crew from all over the world talking about everything from monarchy, as I watched that segment the other day, fascinating, uh, to real leftist movements that are happening in places like Italy. And uh, what was the one that I was really interested in the other day? Well, he was airing in a Switzerland. Uh, I love, I, yeah, he does a lot of Eastern European stuff that I'm uh, I'm constantly learning from him. And I think it's a space that we need to examine more because it is where the right has been most effectively organizing. And they're repeating a lot of the tactics <clears throat> all over the world, but really in the US as well. So if you've not checked out the committee program, uh, it is not just academic, it is tactical. And when we launched this show, we said that we were going to do tactical stuff and you are going to get and have been getting tactical uh, information. So, all right, everybody, uh, we will be right back after this break 
to discuss the word that we used to ban on this show because we would get demonetized when we said QAnon. But now I think we're safe to talk about QAnon now. There are books about QAnon. Uh, so stay tuned. We're going to discuss that right after this break. Our next guests, are they've gone into the land that so few of us want to explore, but unfortunately it is something important and worthy of exploring because uh, they are still, the remnants of this world still exist or they've reformed, uh, reformed, not like reformed, and they've taken new shape. Um, of course, I'm talking about QAnon. Dr. Mia Bloom is the International Security Fellow at New America, and she's a professor at Georgia State University and a member of the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Research uh, Group. And uh, Dr. Sofia Muskalenko is a psychologist studying mass identity, intergroup conflict, and conspiracy theories. She also, both of them are authors of several books, uh, but this book that they have authored together is called Pastels and Pedophiles Inside the Mind of QAnon. And what they have done is they have uh, taken us down the rabbit hole of extremist rad radicalization in 2021 or modern era, uh, specifically the QAnon rabbit hole, exposing how the conspiracy theory that has ensnared so many Americans um, and, and it's, uh, it led to, of course, the Capitol riots on July 6th and how we got there. Um, both of them discussed the rise of QAnon, which should not surprise any of us because believers have uh, been manipulated to follow baseless conspiracy theories. And they've gone into the darkest corners to figure out where these conspiracies come from. Anything from a Yogi Mama Instagram uh, to COVID-19 uh, pandemic deniers. I think we're all aware of where all of these folks are overlapping. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sofia Muskalenko and Dr. Mia Bloom. Uh, you guys, you have done what <laughs> uh, we needed done. Actually, I was in a car the other day with somebody uh, in Greece, a taxi driver of all. This is always how this happens. And they said, has anybody done a documentary on, on the riots yet? And I said, no, but I, I do know that there's a book on kind of the roots of, of how this was formed. Simultaneously, um, I just found out somebody, no, not, not friends with, I should make that very clear, in New York, who I was uh, in an election with, was just arrested as one of the rioters that um, was radicalized from QAnon on websites. And so, I mean, it was really fascinating to me because I didn't get, while he's odd, I didn't get any of the vibes that I think uh, of, of what we saw, the, the most notable folks that we saw rioting on January 6th. So I think this is a really important uh, piece of research that you have done for the moment for us to understand, you know, just, just how large this community is, how influential, how viral this community is, and, you know, dangerous as well. So um, I will start with Dr. Bloom, who's a political scientist. Dr. Bloom, when you look at the arc of, of, of political, uh, you know, uprisings, I would say, um, how unique is what's happening right now in the QAnon world uh, in the context of, you know, the last 200 years of, of political uprisings that have occurred in the United States? 
Well, QAnon is, in many ways, QAnon is unique. We've had conspiracy theories in the United States for decades. Uh, A lot of them actually grew out of the fact that uh, the Warren Commission report about John F. Kennedy's assassination was redacted. And so because there wasn't perfect information, conspiracy theories filled that void. And I think that what's unique about QAnon is that we're seeing it in real time, but it's the only time we've seen a conspiracy theory become this popular this quickly, go viral, and spill over into other countries. Now, as far as, you know, comparing it to insurrections and and civil wars, some elements are there in terms of the mobilization aspect. The fact that people felt that they individually had to do something. It wasn't enough to be a supporter in in a passive way. But it's also very different in the sense of most of the times, if you have an insurgency or a civil war or something like this, you have very clear um, hierarchy of leaders. And we do not have that in QAnon. QAnon is much more of an amorphous mass. And, And the last thing that I would add is that we've seen a lot of efforts, either the HBO documentary series or Vice News, trying to identify who exactly was Q. We've gotten to the point now where this is such a movement, like a mass movement. It doesn't matter who Q is because these people are much more concerned about their cabal of blood drinking elites than who the individual Q posting these drops was. Dr. Moskalenko, when um, when we discuss how this was able to organize so quickly. Obviously the internet um, facilitates much of this and and things it's much easier for things to go viral through the internet, but the internet also was able to tap in to people's vulnerabilities and weaknesses. And is there something right now that, uh, I mean, you're a psychologist, what, are, there, are there different strategies that the Q community or whoever's messaging in the Q community community or organizing around the Q community community, they're, they're using to tap into certain types of folks. Like, you know, you always hear, well, it's, 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 it's young uh, men. I mean, you hear about this in many movements, young men, white men, whether it's uh, abroad, you know, radicalization comes from young men who don't feel empowered, but is it more than that? Are there other sort of angles that they're using right now? Yes, you're right. Typically, when we talk about radical groups and terrorist groups, what we see is young men. But QAnon is very different. Its composition is very diverse. There are very young people who are like teenagers and college students, all the way to folks in their 70s and 80s who subscribe to these beliefs. And so when we look at the rates of online engagement with QAnon content, we have a way of measuring how much people click on posts or like it or share it. Um, We see, you know, since the onset of these Q drops in 2017, we see a little gradual rise in the number of people engaging with content. And then we see a geometrical progression with just multitudes greater engagement as the COVID pandemic started. And then is another huge jump when the lockdowns were implemented. And so what happened was, and what is still unfortunately happening is, we were experiencing this unprecedented situation with highly anxiety and fear producing unknown virus that we didn't know what it was. We didn't know how deadly it was. We didn't know how it was transmitted or how we can protect ourselves against it. 
And we know from psychology research that when people are made to feel anxious and out of control, they are a lot more drawn to conspiratorial stories and a lot more likely to endorse conspiracy theories. So that was one factor. Another factor was the isolation that came from the lockdowns. We were all kind of locked um, for nobody knew how long it was going to last. We were severed from our social connections. And we also know that loneliness and isolation is another very predictable stimulus that makes people seek conspiracy con um, content and stories. And then what happened in the lockdowns is, of course, the only window into the world for all of us was the internet. We went to our screens searching for answers to all these very difficult, very emotional questions. And very quickly, the social media led us through, you know, three, four clicks. There are people who had demonstrated that in the research community. Three or four clicks got you from legitimate inquiries about what is a COVID virus? What is um, the truth about vaccines? Um, like, you know, Donald Trump as president or as a presidential candidate, those things, when you type them into the search and Facebook and Twitter, you know, the next recommendation that you received would bring you that much closer to QAnon content. And so three or four clicks down, you would be looking at, you know, massively influencing content that was capitalized by people who were, you know, selling T-shirts and, and sweatshirts and mugs with, with Q um, on people's fears, anxieties desire to connect with others who experience the same emotions. So yeah, this was an unprecedented situation that put all of us through the ringer. And a lot of people were kind of experiencing a perfect storm at the end of which they found themselves down this rabbit hole and deep into QAnon. Dr. Muskoglu, how much of this was... Um designed like is, is there like a I mean is it Q or a group of we don't know who it is obviously as, as Dr. Bloom said but is it chicken what is it, the chicken or the egg are, are they responding to trends like that they're seeing because it seems very nimble to the moment but obviously there must be some sort of basic set of principles that they know that you know when there's uh, economic disparity or something that's happening, some crisis, um, people are more influenced and out of control. So there must be some sort of psychological principles that are at bay. And then it just seems so quick. So are they reacting to trends, Google search trends, um, or is it, or is it coming from the top in some way? It almost sounds like you are proposing a conspiracy theory. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, well, I'm, I'm actually thinking like, like if you look at, so if in, you know, we've all done I'm, our shows on the internet. So we know that you can see what's being searched and you can target that. And a lot of hosts will say, oh, this is trending. So we're going to talk about that today. But simultaneously, you know, if you want to influence a group of people, you know, it's not uncommon for political, uh, uh, you know, political messaging experts to say, this is how you frame this to respond to this moment. So I'm, to break it away from conspiracy and, and make it more tactical, do you have a sense of that? Like, is there, is there a psychological messaging that seems to be like uh, consistent? So from what we know right now, and, and we don't know everything and, you know, hopefully data will come in later that will explicate a lot of things we don't know. From what we know right now, there are kind of three vectors, three directions that help QAnon spread. One, it, it seems like could have been spontaneous, you know, just some people proposing conspiracy theories. Maybe it was, um, you know, a game for them. Maybe they 
were trying to design kind of like an online gaming experience for people to figure out this puzzle about how the world really works. Maybe they didn't really, you know, have any political designs beyond that. That's one vector. And then a lot of people engaged with it completely, you know, spontaneously and without any design other than just, you know, engaging with it. Another vector is that we know from very early on, QAnon content was helped to spread by Russia-sponsored trolls and bots and by China-sponsored institutions. And even Iran helped to spread, you know, conspiracy theories about COVID and the vaccines. So these foreign malicious actors really capitalized on what could have been just grassroots movement um, and helped it multiply and reach people that it wouldn't have otherwise reached. And then a third vector of spread was these high profile politicians and influencers like Donald Trump, like General Flynn, who had an amazing reach into people's you know, phones and social media and into their psyche and influenced them um, when they liked, you know, certain posts, when they validated them with their authority. We know for a fact that leaders have a way of convincing people in situations where they're not certain if something is true or false, if something is good or bad. So there was, in fact, you know, influence from people in power who benefited politically from influencing people and making them um, disbelieve our institutions, our democracy, and ultimately, you know, attempt to thwart a legitimate presidential election and reinstall Donald Trump to power. So these three different directions, some of them by design, like, you know, Russians knew what they were doing, um, some of them spontaneous, and, and some of them kind of uh, mercenary, you know, like the, the politicians, um, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene got elected on this huge tsunami wave of, of QAnon. And they're still exploiting it. When you look at the fundraising, people like Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, or people who were, you know, not necessarily officially Q, like Mo Brooks or Madison Cawthorn. These are people who are benefiting. They're using the individuals who may be very well-intentioned when they first started down that rabbit hole and they're exploiting them financially. And we see the outcome is that we have millions of Americans now that don't believe that President Biden won the election. Some don't believe that's even Biden. There's a small segment of QAnon that thinks that it's Donald Trump wearing a Biden mask. And the reason that Biden wears his mask all the time is that they haven't synced up the lips yet. And, and my joke was, and, and where did he put the extra 140 pounds? But that's, you know, aside from the point, it is really important what? to emphasize <laughs> how bad QAnon is for the individual and for the country. Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, okay. So um, Dr. Bloom, when we talk about QAnon, I, I know it's hard to measure. It's not like they answer these polls or anything, but I mean, there is they data there. Do. You can see the click rates. Oh, they do. Oh, cause they that's do. right. The, the new America. So uh, not new America, sorry. The um, American Enterprises Institute, which is AEI, it's a conservative think tank has run a number of polls, uh, some of which have appeared in the Washington Post and we're looking at probably around 30 million Americans that believe that there is a global cabal of blood drinking Democrats and elites. 
do they identify, I mean, not that it matters at that point, but do they identify as QAnon? Well, so that's how you, or you know, that's how you sort of, of goose, you know, when you're, when you're designing a survey, you're trying not to do what in the law they would say leading the witness. So you're asking, instead of saying, are you Q, most people are, no, I'm not Q. Do you believe that there's a cabal of blood drinking Democrats? Oh, yeah. Then you're Q. So it's not necessarily a requirement to self-identify, but these people, and we have it around, uh, let's say, 27% of evangelicals but and, and over 30% of Republicans but even 6% of people who identify as Democrats believe the statement that there is a cabal of blood drinking um, elites who are manipulating, you know, pulling the strings. And so this is where it's really problematic because as QAnon, as, as Dr. Moskalenko said, with the beginning of March 2020 and the pandemic, the Wall Street Journal places the interest in QAnon posts, groups, Facebook groups, et cetera, that there was a 600% increase in that month. And so we've seen this increase, not just in the United States, but in Canada, France, Britain, Australia. I mean, it's everywhere now. It's in 85 different countries. Yeah, I, I mean, I was at a conference uh, two weeks ago, and this was a topic of conversation, actually, on a panel that I, I was on. We were specifically talking about, you know, being on the Internet and being on the left and seeing how uh, suddenly, even on the left, there are, depending on the country, um, echoes of of a lot of these sort of cue statements, but with supposed leftists who are targeting, in particular, women, female progressives and putting themselves out there to be progressives. But then it doesn't seem like they're ever pushing for anything progressive or organizing on anything progressive. They're just attacking progressive leaders saying you're not progressive enough. And and then, of course, there's misogynist uh, language surrounding that. Go ahead, Dr. Bloom. Well, so what was really interesting is that uh, we, we chart this in the book and we explain how QAnon you know, became this phenomenon that has millions of, because I can tell you, Sophia and I have both been studying terrorism for decades. Thank goodness we've never seen a terrorist group this popular. But one of the ways that they did that to the left side of the spectrum is that with that video pandemic, the one that said the pandemic was deliberately released as a bioweapon and it indicted Anthony Fauci and a number of other well-respected doctors that was only on YouTube for four days before they took it down, but it got 8 million views. And so that was the gateway drug for many women on the left because it started appearing in, in um, mom influencer timelines and people who followed very famous yogis or even people who were very much involved with like veganism or natural childbirth or breastfeeding. These are women that we ordinarily associate on the left. And so this is where QAnon as a phenomenon, as a movement has been very clever that it's been able to appeal to even people on the other side, much smaller than Republicans, but there are people who think of themselves as Democrats, but still believe it. But in, in I mean, we can only speak to the US, so obviously it's happening all over the world, but in elections where it does sometimes come down to 20,000 votes, that can make a huge difference. Every little piece matters. And also the fewer progressives coming into the Democratic Party and making them more powerful, at least I can only speak from that perspective um, because we just see that they're creating conflict. Whether or not it's effective or not, it's, it's, it's diverting attention, diverting energy away from productive organizing, uh, whether in the media space or in the organizing space, because you're too busy combating these, uh, you know, these falsehoods. 
Um, and the main being said, QAnon, I, very, I have to tell ahead, you, though, the main part of QAnon, though, yeah. is very inconsistent with progressive ideas. They are extraordinarily right. anti-trans. They're anti-gay. They're anti-critical race yep. theory. And so even if they are appealing to a small tranche of what we would consider to be liberal or leftist, the basis of a lot of what they're saying is, is something that many people on the left would find anathema. So, um, I guess, you know, because there are, I know that there are older people um, that are part of QAnon and who who follow QAnon, who show up. I've been to some of these rallies for Trump and they have the Q shirts on and they really do believe, you know, Dr. Fauci and and Bill Gates are, you know, say we all about Bill Gates, like that they're uh, the devil incarnate or whatever their their theories are, or, you know, the same people are like the, the, the pizza gators. We know these conspiracies, but the younger ones, um, the yogis, for instance, we'll use them as an example, or not even the yogi moms, but the younger ones, I'm, I'm concerned, Will, is there any sense, Dr. Moskalenko, that this messaging is sticking with them because they are minorities in their generation. They are still drowned out by a much more progressive uh, demographic that's rising up, a much more diverse demographic. But with that being said, of course, there are, there are young people that are on cue and, and being radicalized. But we also read these stories like, OK, I was on there and then I like woke up. Um, I don't know how how common that is, if that's not put out there for a reason uh, to influence. But do, I mean, do they do they stick around? Is is it too soon to tell? It's a good question, and it's very hard to get a good answer to this question because QAnon is so numerous. Judging by these representative national polls that that we have data from, um, and the people who are very vocal about having left are just a few individuals. We don't know how many people have left that haven't spoken out. Um, it's possible that there are like scores, but um, we don't have those data. And what's more, people who are deep into the rabbit hole are very resistant to participating in research. You know, they're very distrustful of science and scientists and, and anything related to government. Um, so it's a bit of a black box. We see things that come out. We don't see things that go on inside of it. Um, as far as the yogi and, and women, um, I think QAnon filled a very important role for a lot of people, including young mothers, um, in that it spoke to these deep uncertainties that we all have to live with. Right? We we don't raise our own food. We don't um, we don't know the medicine that goes uh, into our bodies or our children's bodies. Right. And unfortunately, there is over the past few years, there's been a lot of scandals having to do with unscrupulous practices in pharmaceuticals, in food production, right? Like every other week, I have to keep up with a new recall of something that has E. coli or some chemicals that are going to make my children sick or, or God forbid, something worse, right? So women, especially mothers, they have to contend with these multiplying uncertainties that are very high stakes, right? What can be more important than your children's health? And so we have all these questions and no answers, I mean, I have three kids and, you know, I have to deal with this on a daily basis. I understand the anxiety that goes into it. And when QAnon comes out and says, you know what? 
everything you hear about COVID is wrong. It's it's a false narrative that is designed to benefit financially these pharmaceutical companies and these hospitals. You know, I understand how it would resonate with somebody who's already feeling very, very burnt by, you know, the medical field, by pharmaceuticals, by science that goes into food and into medicines, right? And so I think we need to to really, if we want to curtail the influence and spread of QAnon as a society, and I think we do, um, we need to work on making these things more transparent, on limiting how much lobbying can go into all of these important fields and how much control we lose as a result of that as consumers, as parents, as caretakers for loved ones. And so, you know, we have important issues that QAnon raised. And I think a productive way forward is to address them. And, you know, when we do, QAnon is going to become irrelevant. They, 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 whoever is messaging this, right? Uh, whether it's, you know, uh, some sort of nefarious influences foreign um, who are, are invested in, you know, making sure that the right wing uh, stays in power in, in, in the U.S. And, and in other places, whatever their, their goals are, um, they're tapping in on weaknesses in our society. And it's very clear that we have a monopolized, uh, our countries run off of monopolies and our food system and there's there's rising trends. I mean, I, I too, when I was like in my early twenties, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm vegan, I'm organic. Like I can tell you all the things that I do. I understand that personally as a yogi, I also see, I, I, I mean, this is how I was rad- radicalized into that space when I was in my early twenties. Luckily I'm a, you know, from, I have a political background, so I wasn't able to fall down that rabbit hole. I'm also older, but if that had happened to me, you know, in 2004 and 2004 was today, and I was 22 years old when it was happening today, maybe I'd be in a different space. And I, and I say that because it's, it's completely relatable. I was just as vulnerable then being educated. So I, 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 I pose that because it is extremely horrifying to me how vulnerable with the sophisticated technology, you know, Cambridge Analytica was one form in 2016. They've absolutely become more sophisticated. They've got influencers. They've influencers we may not even know about still, you know, at this moment that might, you know, three or four years down the line might expose themselves to be, you know, the next version of a Trump supporter. Um, are we thinking, Dr. Bloom, far enough in advance about what their tactics are. Because I feel like we're still talking about Facebook, which is extremely dangerous. You know, the top uh, shows on Facebook are right-wing funded shows and they're all conspiratorial, shocker. Um, But on our show, we talk about, you know, other uh, platforms that are extremely dangerous and the algorithms are without a doubt skewed towards white men, uh, at least on the political side, white men who um, all seem to have issues with women. (laughs) There's, there's a, there's a lot of misogyny and there's a lot of sexism, uh, misogyny and uh, racism. So, but this is still not discussed. Like I know a lot of hosts were beating our heads against the wall. So are we thinking enough in advance about what's next? Because this is what's happening right now. And that's not being discussed on Capitol Hill. They're still talking about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, which is relevant, but you know, is it the yogi influencers or is there something else that we're not aware of that we should be paying attention to at this moment? So there's a few things, and that's a great question. Part of it is, you know, Sophia and I have been studying terrorism for decades. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to make sure that we don't repeat the mistakes that we made 20 years ago in the aftermath of 9-11. And some of the policies that were enacted actually backfired. 
when you're looking at QAnon, you have to appreciate that um, it's not just like another new group. It's very different. It's not a kind of radicalization that fits and um, maps on perfectly to radicalization we've seen with jihadi groups or far-right neo-Nazi groups. There are elements. So in, it's very important for, for our political leaders to understand the complexity. People don't like complexity. They want an easy answer. They want things black and white. When you say it's complicated, they don't like that. But in fact, of course, it's complicated. We, we know that Facebook is dangerous still because the top ranking um, misinformation or disinformation about the COVID-19 vaccine was coming from Facebook, something like 80 something percent from 12 people, <laughs> 12 individuals. One of them was, was, was a Kennedy. So, you know, Robert Kennedy's son. It's not necessarily just coming from one side of the spectrum. With anti-vaxxing, you have, you have a, a wedge issue that is something that both very conservative and some liberals agree on. And so this is where we need to look at it not as a partisan issue, but as a bipartisan issue. The other thing that we have to consider is we have to improve our own ability to sort fact from fiction. And the reason I think Facebook continues to play such a pivotal role in these um, hearings on Capitol Hill is because so many people are getting their news from Facebook and the news is being curated along these algorithms that, as Sophia was saying, you're never more than three or four clicks away from either something you know neo-Nazi or something conspiratorial. The last thing that we have to consider is that these groups are... are in some ways being amplified by foreign, malign foreign actors like Russia and China and Iran, like we saw in 2016, but also that they're behaving in the exact same ways that the terrorist groups did behave when they were deplatformed. So they've moved away, let's say from the open platforms like Google or YouTube or Twitter to the semi-encrypted platforms. And on Telegram, which is run by Pavel Durov, who's a Russian company that owns Russia's version of Facebook, Vicontact. He was so slow to deplatform ISIS, it took him five years to get rid of ISIS content. This is where we see the QAnon content running rampant. And we see the influencers, people like Linwood or Sidney Powell, or even you know, former President Trump, or the Trump family, or the Flynn's. These are people that are still disseminating QAnon tropes. And because it's spilled over into the politics, the GOP is very reticent to come out against it. Despite the fact that, let's say, for example, Sophia mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's just, you know, in the news all the time doing outrageous things. When she was first uh, a primary candidate, before she won her primary, Steve Scalise and Kevin McCarthy were very vocal against her. Scalise even gave money to her opponent. The moment she won the primary, they shut up and they got in line. And we had last summer 97 uh, candidates running that were QAnon. And though the um, 2022 election is more than a year you know, away, we already have 18 to 20 QAnon candidates that are going to run. So we're going to see a lot of QAnon candidates. Overwhelmingly, they're Republicans. And until the Republican Party decides to disavow them, they will continue to gain traction. I'm also worried. The last thing is many of these women are raising kids. And these kids are going to grow up thinking that these things are real. And we need to give enough information and tools for teachers 
that when these kids end up going to school and they think it's that there's a blood drinking cabal, that the teachers have the ballast to be able to say, okay, I need to set you straight. If I just, we should fund our public schools. <laughs> um, I wanted to add to that, Nomiki, because I think you raised a really important point about how far ahead are we able to look? Um, so, you know, there is an evolution of both our understanding and ability to police radical activity and the the kind of radical activity that we're experiencing, right? And evolution, unfortunately, but it's true, it prepares us for the challenges of yesterday. Everything that, you know, evolution does is to respond to something that was true yesterday, but may not be true today. And we're living in a time of unprecedented change. Just think about, you know, the devices that made it possible for us to communicate with people around the world at a flick of a finger, right? The internet, social media, just um, the ability to, you know, fly overnight to, um, you know, the place that, you know, you used to not be able to reach at all. So all of these things have opened possibilities for different kinds of radicalization and they have appeared, but we're not prepared for them. The research that we have and the policing capabilities we've developed are tailored for, you know, small face-to-face 9-11 type groups. And so we need to pivot and respond quickly to this. It's like an arms race. And we're one step ahead just by virtue of living in a time of unprecedented change. Um, and, and so you're absolutely right. There are all kinds of new challenges that are effectively radicalizing huge segments of the population, which we've never seen before. This mass radicalization of millions and millions of people is something new. And, and so we need to respond to that in every possible way. But I think... As I, as I mentioned already, the, the best direction is for us to fix the problems that we actually have, that these radical movements are capitalizing on. Um, and in the book, we propose a lot of other things that we need to do, such as, as Mia mentioned, um, put, put tools at disposals of teachers and educators that they can implement to teach our children to decipher what is good information online and what is bad information, what is a good source you know, how, how do you answer questions when you Google search something, um, you know, that a YouTube video is not necessarily the say, you know, the final say on anything. Um, literacy, when it comes to using Internet and social media, um, are methods of curtailing influence of individuals or groups who are just spilling disinformation. Um, all of those things are really important for us to address. I'm, I'm really happy you brought up the point because um, my final question to both of you uh, is, and, and I'll start with Dr. Bloom for the political aspect. Um, you know, we are a leftist show on the internet. And so obviously we have a lot of, our show has a lot of thoughts about this, but our little crew of folks who've been fighting this, you know, the disinformation that's been put out, uh, especially, you know, the last, I'd say 10 months or so um, through leftist shows, you know, it's been extremely clear. In the beginning, we, it was in a very abrupt shift. We thought, okay, where is this coming from? These are people that used to be our friends, these hosts. And suddenly they're aligning with Tucker Carlson and not going on Tucker Carlson's show to debate him, but to agree with him. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're COVID deniers, they're vax deniers, uh, they're mass deniers. They are targeting EOC and the squad, like they're the enemies of, the democ- of democracy. And so this has started to push out um, in 
in supposed leftist spaces or people who used to be leftist. And then um, and then a bunch of other uh, hosts have popped up in the last, you know, say eight or nine months, uh, some who are explicitly funded by Iranian uh, government or some who are explicitly funded by the Russian government, Putin. Um, I want to make that extremely clear. And, and I say this because we have been, um, there's some leftist hosts where we've seen our numbers stall or go down because as they're out, as they're building up and they're growing their audience, ours, for many of us who've been in the media space for a long time, know that these, these is, this is very odd. And so we've complained, we've gone to the big companies, we've made public cases saying to, 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 to lawmakers who seem to not understand how it works and specifically to the companies, whether it's Google or Twitter, or Twitter less so, but uh, you know, other platforms, Facebook, obviously, that we are just not getting the numbers that we used to get two, three, four years ago, anywhere near what they are. And some hosts have pivoted because they need to exist. It's not because I think that their politics have shifted, but because they realize for them to continue to have their show, they need to be a little bit more flexible uh, when it comes to, you know, questioning certain things. And so I asked, the question I'm asking of both of you is, you know, it's one thing to educate people about how to understand misinformation and propaganda and this extremely sophisticated form of propaganda. And for us to exist in the space to uh, challenge it, but we're not getting the numbers we used to get. And from my perspective, the only solution is to have government intervene in some way. And if the U.S. is completely stalemated, you know, why doesn't this, why doesn't the EU regulate? Why? I mean, there are there are great opportunities, and it is well past the point to regulate whether it's a democratic algorithm. An algorithm it doesn't have to be breaking up the companies, but uh, an algorithm that is designed by a more demographic, you know, uh, democratic demographic or for a more democratic demographic. You know, our audience is 90% male. That's not, that's why we have a show on Fridays that's all women because we think that this is insane. And so, so I, it's my, my rant, I know it's a long rant, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying this, Dr. Bloom, because it's, it's, it seems as if like the, the elephant in the room is, Governments can do something about this and they're not. And I think in the U.S. we have a better sense of why, uh, funding, et cetera. But in places like the EU, they're great at regulation. <laughs> why is it so there's, there's a lot there. I mean, I think you need to think about it that the United States, in contrast to many of our allies, we have a First Amendment right. And that in places, I'm originally from Canada. There are things I can't say. There is there there are things that uh, that I could uh, like speech that is not protected that in this country is protected. I'll give you an example. Um, Canada has been able to designate the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, incels, three percenters as terrorist groups. We cannot. We have not done that yet. And so part of it is there are FCC regulations. Those regulations could look more into how any of these uh, shows, whether they're online, radio, whatever platform are funded. And if you've got dark money or if you've got foreign benefactors, and it's not just our enemies or you know competitors like Russia, China, but it's the UAE. It's, it's countries that we have you know, been allied with, not just those that we oppose. And so there needs to be, you know, these FCC regulations need to think ahead because we do have this freedom of expression. It's been upheld by SCOTUS. You know, we know that um, 
other than saying fire, fire in a movie theater. Now, the reason that fire, fire in a movie theater is is not protected speech, by the way, unless there's an actual fire, then you're allowed to say that, is because saying something that could cause harm in the real world is that area, that gray area that people can clamp down on. And the fact that a lot of what's going on, whether it's um, these platforms, YouTube, on social media, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, we are seeing what the U.S. government calls a transcendence between online behavior to offline harms. And there has been a real desire to understand this better. We don't fully understand why some people might be online consuming horrific material, things that radicalize. And some people are just going to post, whereas other people are going to go get a gun and shoot up a place, you know, in El Paso, like a Walmart, or at a school like Marjorie, uh, Marjorie, wait, um, Douglas, Douglas. that Marjorie Douglas Um, or the movie theater that happened a couple of days. I mean, yeah. Or, or the movie theater that happened at the Batman viewing in Aurora. I mean, we have over and over instances where people move from the online space like Dylan Roof, they're radicalized and then they go and they shoot up an AME church. So we need to understand better those connections. But if the internet, if the platforms were more rigorous in sort of looking who is funding, uh, eliminating the bots and the sock puppet accounts that are fakes, you know, these, these deep fakes or these semi-deep fakes that we know exist, and also the role of malign foreign actors, like the people who are not our friends, the countries that, are, that want to undermine our democracy. So there's so much going on that I think they just revert to, you know, because when the internet, when many of these rules and regulations were created, the internet did not have the role in our lives that it does now. And as Sophia said, you know, I have in, in, in my, in the pocket, in my pocket, in my iPhone, I have the equivalent of the Encyclopedia Britannica, every map in the world, uh, a phone, a recording device, a music player, like it's everything in one spot. We couldn't have foreseen that technological advances 20 years ago. And so we need to update some of these things. But the other thing I'm going to say, and you're probably going to be surprised about this, there's more money on the right than there is on the left. Sebastian Gorka was not always crazy. When Sebastian Gorka used to teach at the Marshall Center in Germany, he was a very like middle of the road not a great scholar, but not crazy right wing. And he came back to the United States and saw, you know what? There's money in the far right. And that explains a lot of people who, who move from the left to the right to cash in because you've got the Koch brothers, you've got dark money. You have a lot more opportunity to monetize on the far right. Whereas on the left, we're going to look, we're going to look at you funny. Like take, for example, Glenn Greenwald. What the heck happened to Glenn Greenwald? Well, as somebody who chose uh, his legal profession, I will counter that to defend Nazis. You know, you got a lot of uh, ways to defend free speech in this country. You can make a lot of money as a partner at a firm to choose to defend Nazis. That's a very specific political strategy, I'll say. Uh, Dr. Moskaleko, final thoughts on, on, on the last question. I mean, is there is there a way out of this through regulation? Um, clearly, the left does not have the same money. Uh, you know, if there is some sort of lefty or group of lefties out there who want to put their money into, um, you know, challenging this space, uh, 
please. <laughs> but. Uh, but it, so so uh, we both tried to convey how layered and complic- complicated this issue is um, and how you know many different things brought it into existence. So any fix is going to have to be similarly multifaceted. And in our book, um, we've tried our best to you know, think of different directions from, you know, addressing the current state of social media who are still acting as private citizens with all the protections that private citizens uh, enjoy while they have clearly outgrown that role. And in my personal view, have become public squares and public squares need to be monitored and regulated and policed. And they're not. We don't have access to the data that they have while Cambridge Analytica type, you know, malicious players do. So we definitely want to do something about that. Uh, we need to up our game as far as educating our society to, you know, the social media complexity and dangers and, um, you know, helping people make better choices while they're while they're participating in online spaces and communities. Um, and one last thing that I want to say that we've found that QAnon um, followers suffer from psychopathology at massively greater rates than average Americans. And so in a way, QAnon is like a symptom of a mental health crisis. And so any solution on the large scale that would address QAnon will have to address mental health problems that are currently just, you know, pathetic in the United States in terms of access to psychotherapy. And a lot of people don't even have insurance that covers it. And there's a lot of stigma. Um, you know, the, the, you know, Olympic games demonstrated what can happen to our top athlete who, you know, decided to take, you know, a day for herself or whatever self care. And she suffered a huge backlash from politicians as well as online personalities. Right. So we need to address all of that. If we want to, you know, one day, one day, find ourselves on the other end of this QAnon thing. Wonderful point, Evan, because our next segment is all about that. So very, very grateful for that wonderful segue, Dr. Moskalenko, Dr. Bloom. Fascinating. Thank you so much for for spending so much time with us today. I mean, this is such a a, a conversation that can go you know for much longer. Um, hopefully, we'll have you back on again. Uh, check out their book, Pastels and Pedophiles Inside the Mind of QAnon. I think this is essential reading. Uh, we have an essential reading list, so please go check this out. This is really important, I think, as as, as scary as it is right now. Uh, I can only speak from the political perspective and the media perspective, and and I say midterms, you don't need as, as much of a turnout uh, as you do for a presidential, and even then, it only came down to 20,000 votes in key states. So even if you think, oh, it's not that large of a movement, if these people turn out, it could influence elections, it could influence the Senate, it could influence the House, and that's really what's in danger here. So we're very grateful to you. Thank you for writing this, putting the time and research into this, and uh, please keep us updated on any other findings you have. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much. Thank you. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Kim Kelly, one of our faves. She is a journalist and organizer based in Philly, writing on labor. Uh, of course, has a labor column at Teen Vogue, and she's a regular contributor to the Baffler magazine. She works on labor, class, politics, and culture. You've seen her work all over the place. Uh, so, Kim, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I hear there's some stuff going down with miners, coal miners, 
who I remember Hillary Clinton saying, coal is irrelevant, get over it. Uh, and I feel like that kind of plays into, I mean, without getting into the, the, the dynamics of like Joe Manchin, but I feel it's be, people are more aware of minor politics because of Joe Manchin. But of course, this spills into uh, Alabama and other places that are organizing. Can, so can you give us a little bit of a background on what's going down uh, in terms of the organizing against BlackRock in New York City in particular and, and other places too? Sure. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Joe Manchin, who is one of the many politicians who have not said a damn word on the oh. over four months that these miners have been on strike. But maybe he's busy and ruining other people's lives. But what's happening with these folks in Alabama, 1,100 coal miners at Met Coal in Brookwood have been out on strike since April 1st. It's, I mean, it's uh, the end of July at this point. It's been a long, it's been a long haul. And they're not going anywhere either. They've been escalating their actions. They've been sticking to their original demands, which are not really that intense. Honestly, they've been, they are on strike because they're negotiating a new contract. You know, a contract comes up every five years. It was time for a new one. The one they had accepted previously was garbage, honestly, because Warrior Met had bought the mine, uh, you know, had come into the mines after the prior owners had declared bankruptcy and laid a bunch of people off. Warrior Met came in, they're like, okay, we'll give you your jobs back. But, you know, we're just kind of getting settled. So here, take this terrible contract with a $6 an hour pay cut and more insurance costs and less vacation days and just a total lack of respect. You sign on that dotted line and five years down the line, we'll take care of you once we're on our feet. Well, once we're on our feet. And of course that hasn't happened. So 1100 miners have been on strike ever since. And the interesting thing that happened just this week is about 400 of them from Alabama, as well as West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky, bust up to Midtown Manhattan and protested, picketed in front of BlackRock's headquarters because BlackRock is one of the venture capitalists who hold a like hold a stake in Warrior I think it's about 13%. And so these are the folks who are making money off of the miners. These are the folks who are profiting from their labor and who are enabling this company to continue operating while these guys are out on strike, out on the picket line. Just that feeling of sticking it to the man, taking it to the the belly of the beast and the doorstep of these powerful capitalist investors. A ton of labor leaders came out, a ton of local unions and rank and file members came out. Susan Sarandon showed up, which is cool, I guess. (laughs) People were excited about that. And ultimately it was a really... I think it was a really smart move for them too, like tactically speaking, because there hasn't been a ton of mainstream media attention on this strike, something that is almost becoming a story in and of itself. Like, why isn't anyone paying attention? So I think this was a good move to show up where the media is and be like, hey, we're here, we're down to talk, please pay attention because we're striking for our lives right now. How um, common is it for uh, labor, for you know, organizers in particular to, to go and challenge the financial interests, the the hedge funds that are often uh, attached to exploiting their work? I think this is a little bit of a novel tactic. I mean, I'm sure it's happened before. I don't have a Rolodex in my head. I mean, even going back to Harlan County, uh, the uh, the miners came up to Wall Street then to, you know, make their voices heard. You're going back to the great copper strike of 1983, a delegation of women, of wives and auxiliary members came out from Arizona to Wall Street to speak. Like this is, it's definitely an established tactic. 
it's just something you don't see that often because you don't often see strikes that are this magnitude. I mean, 1,100 people is a big deal. I think I was just reading uh, Dave Jamison, a great reporter, he's had a piece out today about how I think there have only been eight strikes in all of this t- past year that are that are at that magnitude. Like we used to in the 30s and 40s and before that have hundreds of thousands of workers out, but it's less common now. So having such a huge strike happening, so many workers for so long, and the fact that they came up and stood there in front of BlackRock, who nobody likes BlackRock. BlackRock is evil, even outside of this particular case. I, I think it showed so much strength and so much ingenuity because they're like, right, if people aren't paying attention to us down in Alabama, all right, we're going to come, come on up to where you guys are and say hello. I mean, they're from Alabama and the last big event in Alabama that, you know, from a national uh, audience in terms of organizing was, of course, what happened in Bessemer just a few months ago. Um, is, is, is there sort of a, is it like a movement or is this just a coincidence? Honestly, you think it's funny. I mean, Amazon Drive is the reason I found out about this strike. So I was already there covering it. And this strike is happening only like 16 miles away. Like it's in pretty much the same area. But the attention that this strike has gotten is so much lower. And I think, you know, it's not that there's something in the water in Tuscaloosa County. I think it's the fact that, you know, these kind of strikes, maybe not this many workers, but strikes and labor actions are happening all over the country all the time. We just don't always hear about them because there aren't enough places to write about them, people to write about them, or places willing to pay people to write about them. And of course, the mainstream media, you know, fancy people don't really care that much until they come to your doorstep. And even then, we'll see. So it's like, you know, Alabama has a very strong labor movement, a very rich labor history. It's not, if you know a little bit about that history, it's not weird that this is happening. I mean, the UMWA, their union has been in Alabama since 1890, you know, with the workers in Bessemer, like there's a very strong history in and around Birmingham. So it used to be an industrial center of like the mine mill workers or like even with the steel workers. So it's not, it's not that weird. It's not that uh, unexpected. I think the scale of this strike is maybe, uh, you know, that part is unique, but I think things just sort of kind of came to a head and, you know, folks on folks from Amazon and folks from the mine that have been supporting one another and showing up at each other's rallies and speaking at each other's events. Like the community there is very strong. They're just not getting very much attention. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this because obviously there's a resurgence in like union um, organizing growth, you know, trying to build unions, whether it's in the media space, like, like myself and in, in different. Okay. So that's, there's a resurgence um, through the left, but are you finding, and I know it's harder because obviously unions have been weakened, but have you, have you found in the last couple of years, there have been more strikes than say five years ago or 10 years ago? I mean, I think what we're seeing, I think we're seeing more worker resistance in general. If it's not official, like, you know, legal strikes, there's work stoppages, there's sick outs, there's, even right now we're in the middle of this, this sort of wave of workers who work in retail or in fast food or in these, you know, dangerous and unpleasant kind of industries who are not coming back to work because the pandemic showed like, you know what, there's more to life than this. If I'm going to get treated like crap at my job, I'm going to just find another job. You know, this... Uh, this sort of illusion of a labor shortage is just, you know, bosses not paying people enough and making sure that working conditions are decent and people not behaving properly when they interact with folks who are in the service industry. I think, you know, like there hasn't, 
there's been a ton of re- renewed interest in labor and in unions. It's kind of always been there. It's just been harder to get involved because our labor laws are so broken. And of course, we had to deal with the previous presidential administration, which was a nightmare on every possible level, but it was really bad for labor. But, <laughs> so I think we're in a point where people, you know, they, they realize, you know, our work is essential. We might have some options. It might be a little easier to join a union. Like, I think people people feel like there's just a little more wiggle room to you know, to do something, to go on a protest, to walk out, to make demands, to join the IWW. Like you do have options and maybe it's a little, I think we're just at this moment where people are kind of, you know, catching on to that and thinking, oh, okay, maybe I can do that too. On that note, there's, uh, there were scabs that were sent. Uh, Okay. Like let's, let's just pull back the curtain a little bit. First off, what is a scab for audience who may not be completely familiar with, with scabs and, and how does it, how do the tactics I mean, have the tactics evolved? Cause I, I, I would assume that it's become much more, much more, much more sophisticated with more reporting on these tactics, especially after what happened in Bessemer, um, where there was so much reporting in terms of, of how they were trying to break apart um, and disrupt and, and whether it was legal or illegal, uh, affect the, the vote that happened. And of course it did affect the vote that happened. So can you explain like just what scabs are and then what tactics are being used now? Um, and if they're necessarily like different, have they, if they've changed over time? All right, guys, we are so sorry. Uh, we have been dealing with some technical issues with Kim Kelly. Uh, we, I'm going to assume it has to do with heat and power and Wi-Fi connections, but she kept freezing up and we kept trying again. Uh, so what we're going to try to do is bring her back very soon to finish this conversation. The strike has been going on for, for several months now, so we know that there's more, but that was a nice teaser. It was a great teaser for, for what's what's to come. Um, Kim Kelly is obviously a recurring guest and she always has a ton to say about uh, what's happening in the labor movement. So uh, it was a little bit of a teaser, so stay tuned. All right, up next, we have our amazing panel with Hadas Thier and Kate Widlett to talk about some of the stuff that's happening in the, uh, in, the in the universe of Olympics uh, and, and, and maybe some more, maybe we'll spill into other topics too, but I think Olympics might take it up. Maybe a little bit about Amanda Knox. I don't know if you know about Amanda Knox, but, um, if you remember Amanda Knox, but she made a thread today that was extremely revealing about how the press treats women in the media. And that's, uh, from her angle as somebody who was tried for murder and was held innocent, and yet is still treated as if she was somehow involved in the murder that she had no involvement in. Stick around, we are gonna talk about that in our next segment. All right, everybody, you know I love Sunset Lake CBD. I was a CBD skeptic because I went to a bodega like any good New Yorker would, and I was like, let me check out this CBD thing, and I grabbed a little CBD tincture, and I spent, mm, more money than I do on Sunset Lake CBD. And it tasted funky and it did not work. And then I was like, I don't understand. What is this supposed to do? I don't know. It doesn't, it hasn't helped with my ailments. It hasn't calmed me down. So I gave it up for like, I don't know, three years or um, until our dear friend, Sam Cedar was like, no, 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 CBD is the best. It's the best. It helps me sleep at night. 
blah, blah, blah. And then I heard his ads and I was like, okay, whatever, Sam, you're just like completely indoctrinated. And then Sunset Lake CBD reached out to us and sent us some products. And then I tried them, of course, um, whether it was rolling and actually smoking the, the CBD, the hemp, uh, and that calmed me down. But more than anything, it helped with my migraines because I get migraines. And the only time I smoke other things is because I have really bad migraines. But luckily, since I can say this with authority, since I've been using the CBD, I've not been getting migraines nearly anywhere near the rate that I was before. I don't know if that's like something magical in the universe, but I'm going to guess it has something to do with the fact that every single day I use my Sunset Lake CBD in some form. I use the tincture at night to help me sleep through the night. I monitor my sleep with my, uh, with my wrist monitor, which is charging right now. And that's super important to me because I toss and turn all night, but the CBD has helped me not toss and turn all night. Part of the reason I toss and turn all night is because I have sciatica. And so it helps my sciatica pain. Yes, I am 95 years old and I'm gonna tell you all about all of my aches and pains, but that is why CBD is great. Uh, we sound old, but we are all humans who have pains and aches and sleep issues, and we like to cover them up and not deal with them. I do yoga. That helps a lot. But when I don't do yoga, it doesn't help a lot. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. They have all sorts of products for everybody, whether it's gummies, salves, coffee, my mom loves it, tinctures, uh, fudge, dog biscuits, of course. Uh, they originally were a dairy farm in Vermont. It was a Ben and Jerry's. Oh yeah, those those guys, those guys who are just so courageous, challenging authority. Uh, ben and Jerry's decided uh, that they were going to flip that farm and turn it into a CBD hemp farm. And what happened was, uh, as a result, they're supporting rural communities. And when you support them, you are supporting rural communities and creating meaningful employment in that community in Vermont. Their minimum wage is $15 an hour. Hear that, Christian Cinema? And employees own the majority of their company and they support independent media like our show, The Majority Report and David Pakman Show. Go check out their dog biscuits, which you can eat too with your dog or not. You can eat them alone. If you like them, just eat them alone. It's like three, three different uh, ingredients and none of them are dog ingredients. I mean, they're like human ingredients. It's like, it's like nothing. Um, I also love their salves, so you can use that too. Just, I'm just throwing out all the different products right now. Anyways, you can get 20% off of your entire order if you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and type in NOMI, N-O-M-I, 20% off of your entire order, sunsetlakecbd.com, type in NOMI, N-O-M-I. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Back again to the Nomi Key Show. We have Kate Willett is co-host of the comedy podcast Reply Guys, which I've appeared on. Thank you so much, Kate, for coming back on. It's so good um, to see she, you. So good to see you too. You, of course, have done all sorts of amazing work uh, in this space and you've really like exploded as a, I would say like a lefty comedian. Is that is that fair to say? Is that a space? Yeah, yes. I mean, it is, but I also tell a lot of jokes just about, like, dumb dudes. I mean, <laughs> it's not all political in my stand-up, but I am a leftist and I am a comedian, and sometimes those things go together, and also 
I write plenty of jokes about just dummies that I had sex with. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's better than the folks who are like, I'm just a comedian and my politics, uh, even though it's extremely destructive and, and controversial and uh, problematic, Joe Rogan, um, and has major influence over major populations, like at least you admit that you have a political ideology. Yeah, so, I think that congrats. we all do. I mean, you know... A lot of the, the, there's a bunch of, I, I don't want to hijack this discussion, but yes, the question of like, to what extent does like our politics, like influence our comedy? I think it varies per comedian. Like there are some comedians that are really absurdist and their work truly is kind of not political, which I guess you can make the case that's political in itself, but for sure in the like space of comedians that are political in any way like the right there's the right wing guys are the ones that are like really really popular and they're so not funny on top of it can we just add that to it they're never funny (laughs) yeah sometimes women suck yeah (laughs) meanwhile subscribe to my like muscle formula and also i'm about to interview you know some out of work uh (laughs) whatever's extra from the 80s and I have the most popular podcast in the world totally yeah <laughs> all right uh Hadassier is of course an author and activist she's the author of a people's guide to capitalism an introduction to Marxist economics okay it is Olympic time um it's that that thing that like makes a lot of money for who knows what cabal of folks is making money off the Olympics advertisers for, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, the, the business, I'm very curious, and maybe this will come out of the Olympics, is understanding the business model of the Olympics, given how many people have uh, contracted COVID, didn't come in with vaccines, most of whom come from the United States of America. Go U.S., <laughs> go team, go. Uh, but simultaneously, especially um, after the Naomi Osaka, uh, you know, it, it, when Naomi Osaka came out and said tennis player and said she, she needed a, she was having issues um, uh, speaking to the press because she's a tennis player. She is not a spokesperson. She's not a media figure. And it was, you know, difficult for her mental health and focus. And all of these things are very understandable, especially when you're in your early twenties and like, are just like thrown into starhood. Like she was a tennis player. She's not a star. Um, so now Simone Biles, of course, has said, uh, even though she is somebody that I think folks thought was going to be the front runner I'm not a sports person, but she was going to like most likely win the gymnastics competition for the U.S., right? Um, she stepped down saying that she wants to focus on herself. So, um, you know, I know this conversation, you know, has been kind of focused around mental health, which of course, feel free to bring that into the conversation. But the way that the press and uh, people who even are on the left, like Michael Che, or people who are <laughs> right-leaning press members like um, uh, Piers Morgan, the way that they have responded is like they're burning her at the stake. And I, I don't, I just don't understand how at this this moment we're still the press is still able. People in in the public are able to get away with treating someone who's like a hero to Americans, basically um, this way. So I'll, I'll go to Hadass first. I mean. Do, how do you feel? Is this, is there yeah. going to be a moment where we like, like wake up? I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like we've gone past that moment, but. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's disgusting. I mean, obviously there's also a groundswell of support for her. And I think that that's really important. And I think that what happened with Naomi Osaka really helped to change the conversation in a lot of ways. And I think that that part is very hopeful um, that a lot of people have, um, 
you know, very immediately and instinctively come to her defense. Um, the attacks on her are absolutely disgusting and not coincidental, you know, that you can treat a young black woman like this in the media. And, um, and, 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 you know, it, to me, it feels like a real litmus test of like, whether you're a decent human being or not to, to see somebody, um, struggle and say, I, I can't do this. Um, and given, you know, how much, you know, just c- completely, um, you know, grueling physical and mental work goes into this for years and years. I mean, most, uh, you know, gymnasts, uh, that train for the Olympics start at a super young age, as early as four, you know, I mean, this is their, this is their life. Um, and, um, you know, she, she had a, a, a breakdown, you know, and that's actually very, um, physically very dangerous, you know, in the middle of these, um, incredible twists and moves that things that I can't even fathom how the human body does it, you know, to be able to, um, you know, stay focused and stay in charge mentally is actually really important physically. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's outrageous. And I think that, um, you know, some of the things that I've seen, you know, it's mostly from the right, but some of the things that I see from the left, um, that I think, uh, is, is surprising to me, you know, that because, uh, you know, she has more money, you know, and she's not technically a worker or whatever. And it's like, okay, first of all, you know, first of all, what does that have to do with anything? You know, you should support, um, a human being's right to, uh, physical and mental, um, stability and safety, but also you don't understand how exploitation works. If you think it's just about how much money she has, you know, that's, that's just not how it works. You know, like you were saying, billions of dollars is being made off of advertising and um, media companies and so on. Um, That's who is actually reaping the benefits of this. Um, You know, she's not here to be our, uh, you know, our entertainment um, for, for the sake of all of this uh, tremendous amount of work and exploitation that goes into, into what she does. It's, it's so interesting because I'm so, I'm so happy you bring that up at us because on one hand, you know, you say that there's so much mental conditioning. I mean, anybody who knows about these extra, these extraordinary athletes, the, the the best athletes in the world, they spend, they actually invest, financially invest for them. I mean, I pretty much assume everybody in uh, mental preparation and having a team around them to really mentally prepare them, psychologically prepare them so that their game is tip top form. And you mentioned the twists. I mean, when they're flipping in the air, if their mind gets distracted for one second, it can crack their neck and they can die. I mean, it is actually extremely serious. And I immediately, like the way that the press and and some public figures on the right, it's happening all over the place. Um, I've seen some really disturbing takes, has sort of piled in on her. I, I just, I forget about her being an Olympian or rich or not. It's just part of this trend that's existed since like the beginning of time of, it's like a, a form of burning a woman at stake because she chose, chose, let's keep in mind what's here. It's not that she said, I need a break. I need, this is, I might get killed. And that got completely pushed away from the conversation or a conversation about mental health and maybe even spinning it into Medicare for all if you want to go that far. But she chose to challenge 
with her authority, with whatever power she has, the capital interests that are so extremely invested in this profitable sport, her, her, her coaches, her team, I mean, every aspect, the U.S. government. And she said, I can't. And she is the likely winner. And so what does that mean as somebody who's likely to get the gold medal for the U.S. to say, I can't do this? I mean, Kate, it, it, this is this is to me seems like a form of misogyny layered in with capitalism. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know if we're having the conversations we need to have about what it takes for a woman to step up. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, to me, there's like, obviously, there's tons of racism, there's tons of misogyny. Um, I also think that this is, you know, it's an unsurprising take because for, you know, the past 18, 19 months or whatever, we have been all uh, in a collective debate about whether people should be willing to die for their employer. And, you know, there's a lot of people who really think yes. And, you know, especially um, especially people of color, you know, um, there's a. Yeah, I mean, I'd see people in the media, certain people like portraying this as like, oh, you know, she wants to do self-care, snowflake, da, da, da. But all of these gymnasts have, you know, kind of come out and explain the situation of like, no, she had something happen to her, which like could kill her, you know, basically like um, something in her brain at that time or for this period of time is like not able to uh, like fully perceive like where her body is and the air. I'm probably explaining that wrong, but there's a bunch of gymnasts who have done threads on the twisties, but you know, I mean, I think that like, this is something that we see um, in, in sports and other ways, like in college basketball, like, you know, the debate about like whether people should be getting paid. And it, it very much is like a lot of like conservative white people being like, yeah, you know, these people don't deserve to get paid. And it, like, it's, it's inextricable from racism and from wanting like black people to be like a, a source of entertainment um, without like having, you know, rights as workers. And I, I'm unsympathetic to the take that like leftists shouldn't be supporting um, these, these athletes. Like they are, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not like the owners of capital, like they're workers, they're doing stuff with their body. And yeah, they might get paid like a lot, like at one time, but I mean, like their careers also end like super early, you know? And so I don't know. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's definitely really frustrating. And I, I, I am glad to see that most people seem to be like supporting Simone Biles, but, um, yeah, definitely the, whatever backlash there is, 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 is certainly very disgusting. Um, you know, especially considering as another layer that like part of the reason that she's competing and she said that is because like, she wants to kind of con continue to bring awareness to, um, the, the horrific monster that is Larry Nasser that molested, you know, so many girls. And, uh, you know, like she felt strongly that like, okay, if there's, if no one is on the team that experienced his abuse, then like, it'll be easier for it to fade from the public eye. I mean, this is a person who's been through hell, a child sexual abuse. I mean, just absolute hell, you know? And I definitely think that, you know, even beyond politics, right, left, like it is just kind of a sort of a disgusting failure of compassion to be like, yeah, uh, fuck her for not wanting to die, you know? I mean, can you imagine that? So, so she's experiencing these twisties, which are 
not uncommon, but simultaneously dealing with the trauma of sexual abuse from a coach. So there's just so many, so many layers of what's happening right now. And let's not forget she's in her early twenties. This is not, I mean, she's been present in our lives for a long time, but they start their careers in their teens. So I was surprised when I looked at her age and I thought, oh my God, like when I was in my early twenties, I had no sense of any of these things. So yeah. the fact that she's even publicly processing this is, is really admirable. Go ahead, Kate, yeah. I don't mean to Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, it's like the people that were criticizing her, like what, what were they doing in their early twenties? Probably the same stuff as all of us, which is getting drunk and, you know, hooking up. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, a, uh, it's, it is like t- taking away the like horrific moral aspect of the people that are criticizing her. It's also like, what are you doing? Like you're sitting on your couch. Like you can't run a mile. I mean, neither can I. Right. But like, I mean, like who, who are we to criticize one of the foremost athletes in the world for their ability, you know? But Hadass, isn't that part of this model? It's like, um, it's, it's almost, you know, when you go after a woman for cap, like to stand up, a woman that stands up against capital, whether or not we see that out overtly, it's actually what's happening. She's standing up against capital for her, her rights, her rights as a human, her rights as a woman, her rights as a worker to say, no, this is, there's no difference between, I know it's much more public um, and she does make more money, but ultimately, you know, if she were at a factory in a, a coal miner standing up and saying, you know, I deserve to take a mental break because you've been working me too hard or whatever. As a woman, she's going to be, they're going to go after her. And simultaneously, because it's in the public eye at a moment where people are feeling a lot of disparity, it seems like the people who tend to be acting out, whether it's people who are in the political game, forget about them, but people who are just feeling anxiety. And it's like, it, it kind of like feeds into, um, it's almost like a predatory narrative. Like the, the opposition to her is a predatory narrative to, to like tap into a base of really uh, insecure people online. Understandably insecure. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you're saying, I mean, it, it's a workplace safety issue actually. Um, and she has a right to take a break when she needs to take a break. Um, and, and it's also, you know, the way that exploitation works is it's not purely about how much money you make and she, you know, she's luckier than most Olympic athletes who actually make very, very little, if anything, um, because she has ads lined up and, and so on. Um, but that doesn't change the terms of exploitation of who has power here and what um, what she is subjected to, um, you know, the the amount of, of, of very strenuous work. And, you know, like, um, you know, Kate was saying these the. Um, this is a, a short, a short um, window of time that the professional athletes um, can work and just get their bodies spent. And that seems to be considered okay. Um, and, and, you know, like you're saying, there's the, just a heavy misogyny element of it. I mean, it's so steeped in our culture that women should put ourselves last um, in, and, and obviously not just in terms of professional athletes, but that's just how it's, you know, that's just what, the world is supposed to be um, as a woman. And so to have a young woman, a young woman of color stand up and say, I'm actually going to put myself first um, is such a huge blow to this um, very, uh, you know, very widespread um, seeped in idea of a women's, a woman's place. Yeah. And also if I can just add to that, I mean, like even, 
when people talk about like you know someone putting themselves first or taking care of themselves like it makes it sound like she quit to do a face mask or something you know which is like that's it's not true like i mean it's just if you're like flipping in the air and doing all these things like if you can't you know, you can't figure out where your body is in space. Like, that's fucking terrifying, you know? Like, it's not, like, the, the like, self-care that she needed to do is is very different than the stakes of uh, the self-care who isn't, of someone who is not uh, doing, like, a, a truly life-risking thing, you know? I was, I was, somebody was quoted, um, I forgot which sport she won. I apologize. I have not been, I'm not the most sporty person, but uh, she won for Indonesia. And that I can tell you. And she was asked, you know, she started crying on stage because the first time Indonesia's ever won a gold medal for anything. And she said, what are you going to do next? Because I'm going to eat. And I know it's about conditioning as an athlete. It's not, you know, something, but I, I felt so much pain. Listening to her talk about how she's going to drink bubble tea and like eat like a noodle dish. (laughs) But, you know, keep that in mind. All right. Before we wrap, I do want to touch on something and I urge people to go check this out because I woke up to some one of our our followers uh, tagged me this morning in this. And I, I read the thread and I really did not expect to have such a reaction to this thread. Uh, but you all might remember Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox was tried for murder. And I ugh, I hate to say that because it's I'm like feeding into this, but she was a student in Italy and uh, her roommate was murdered. And I'm sure you saw like the lifetime stories and whatever it was that happened in, in the 2000s. But she had a thread because there's a new movie out called Stillwater in which Matt Damon uh, stars and the director is Tom McCarthy. And it is, quote, loosely based or di- directly inspired by the, quote, Amanda Knox saga, as Vanity Fair put it. And of course, a, a, a for-profit uh, article for a for-profit movie. That's important. So she did this entire thread explaining how because she was, she went through this trial. The investigation was, was, I mean, internationally, this investigation was challenged because the police did not abide properly. Normal investigations, the, the litiga- you know, the way that um, the justice system is extremely broken in Italy. And of course, the murderer was convicted prior to her trial, which is like, what? What? <laughs> like, But of course, like it became, you know, like a sexy story. And so she did this thread today challenging the narrative in the media about why is it the Amanda Knox story? Why is it not the story of the burglar named Rudy Guede? I'm I'm probably not saying it. Or the murder of Meredith Kircher or about how the Italian, you know, the Italian law enforcement like botched this. And it's it's a beautiful thread. We'll put it up on screen. We'll link it in the um, description about how this the narrative always like it's it, this is a very common thing and so she says you know why is it we call it the monica Lewinsky scandal not the clinton scandal and so i don't know it, it, the way that she broke this down in like 30 tweets was so beautiful and 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 i've never seen anything like done done like that before but i've seen a lot of women uh wrecked in the press you know for things that they haven't done for things that were completely you know blown up including myself frankly so i wanted to open this up and, and say i know it's a it's a brief segment but like we have to do more and i don't know how we challenge the media i don't know if it's media literacy because sometimes it's even female reporters but there's something something wrong and it's so overt that the director of this film never reached out to her they're doing an entire film based on her life and never reached out to her and she asked them and they ignored her it's so like what? How? I mean, 
is this just capitalism? I can't, I can't justify this. I'm, I mean, what? Yeah, this is like the most grotesque combination of the injustices of the criminal justice system. And then like the sensationalism of, you know, media and, you know, the movie making business. And, you know, it just is a, is, is an easier buck to make to tell a sensational story um, than to tell the truth. Um, and, you know, I don't know, I, I, you know, it's a good, it's a very good question that I definitely don't know the answer to about like what more can, can be done. But I think to like promote, I think, you know, for us to be able to promote and to platform, uh, her voice and other voices, um, that are actually, you know, um, telling her story and telling other stories that are, that are, that are left out of this, um, you know, just disgusting and absurd. Uh, circus. I mean, what's crazy in this thread is she acknowledges, she says, I've reached out to New York Times reporters who like easy fact checks. And I I actually personally had this experience where a New York Times reporter pushed out a a conspiracy theory about me. And I said, "Um, here's the facts. And he goes, oh, I didn't report on it. I didn't put it in writing. I just tweeted it. And I said, okay, so take it down. Wouldn't do it. And I'm, I'm, but to hear, there's so many women who've experienced that. I don't say it's just women, but like there are, I've heard it from a lot of women that they've experienced, um, you know, like these kinds of public, I, I don't know what you have, public floggings, I guess is what you would say. And I just, it, it, whether it's Cori Bush or Ilhan Omar or AOC, I mean, all of them have had like these crazy investigations thrown at them and the press just kind of assumes that they're real, not understanding the right wing just like puts out investigations to tarnish the reputations of, of these politicians or this one, which is assumed she's a murderer, but clearly wasn't convicted. And why? Like, who is this woman? She wasn't in politics. She wasn't challenging authority. She was just a college student. So Kate, I mean, as a, as a, progressive universe, like what, what do you think we can be doing to challenge this? I mean, how do we, I mean, also not fall for it too, because I think a lot of people might be falling for it, like Matt Damon. Yeah. It's really stupid. Like that they're doing this to her. It's incredibly bad. I mean, obviously spreading the word, but I, you know, I think like the thing that would kind of uh, most make a difference is if, if somehow someone can make a movie about her actual story and it's a good movie, that's how Tanya Harding was kind of, uh, People got right. got the news. Just that, wait thirty years, actually, guys. Just yeah, thirty. Years. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, it is. I feel like there are, you know, there there are all of these kind of like maligned women. Uh, you know, Lorena Bobbitt. Um, what's Amy? What's her name? She was the the people called her the Long Island Lolita. Um, Amy Bobbitt. Right? Yeah. Amy no, is, no, no, Lorena Bobbitt no. and Amy Fisher. Amy, I think Fisher. Sorry, think, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Yeah. And I mean, like, and, you know, for a while there was like these, you know, all these stories of like, you know, women that, you know, people were like loved women doing crimes, which is also kind of like a weird thing to be horny for. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just it's I I don't know if I have an exact answer on this, except for like that, you know, it, it would be really great for people to be like disseminating like the actual story and the actual facts. I mean, part of it is like, okay, it's men writing these stories, maybe. And then if it's women, I mean, I don't know. It's so ingrained in our psyche to like, it's, it's, it's obviously the right about a Baba thing was a little bit more 
uh, grotesque, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, there's, I'm really worried, frankly, because it doesn't seem to be reversing anytime soon. Yeah. And I'm um, not comparing, sorry. I just want to say, I'm not comparing like, you know, Amanda Knox, like she, she did not commit a crime, you know, with Lorena Bobbitt, she did commit a crime, but it was in the context of like repeated, like horrible sexual abuse. And I don't know, man. It's just people really do not. <laughs> it's crazy that the not believing women thing extends when like there are incontrovertible facts of what happened that like are publicly available. And it's like, oh, we still don't believe you. Of course. And if you fact check them, they just ignore you. Yeah. So that asks final thoughts. Yeah, no, I mean, I just think it's it's right to connect those dots, too, of like how um, how she was treated. And then, you know, you're talking about Ilhan and AOC or we were just talking about Simone Biles. But it's just considered totally acceptable to just, uh, you know, go after and um, young women of color in particular, but women uh, in general. um, And that's just. Okay. I mean, I was thinking about it the other day. It's like, you know, Bernie Sanders, who, who I love, but like doesn't get the kind of treatment that AOC does. It's like, it's just the the idea of like a, a woman, a, like a young woman being powerful in any way um, is such an affront to the status quo. So, you know, I think, yeah. And the goal, you know, is to silence them. Like that form of, of public flogging is psychological torture, in my opinion. And uh, whether we're conscious of it or not, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I know that I'm not as online as I used to be on Twitter because there's just too much harassment. And I'm sure all of us have experienced that in some way or form. And imagine what AOC is feeling and, and when she should respond or not respond. And imagine what, you know, Corey Bush, they have security around them at all times. I mean, it's, I think we have to do as a, at least from my perspective, a better job of explaining the ramifications of this kind, these kinds of attacks and like what comes with them and how dangerous, like truly dangerous it is without, you know, obviously igniting um, them even more. So Hadass, Kate, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Fun Friday. Really appreciate it's it. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you all for joining today for Fem Friday. We will see you on Wednesday, same time, same place, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And of course, join us on Monday at 3 p.m. for the committee program for this fast. I mean, I think we're the only international focused show. It's the only international focused show on the left right now on the YouTube spaces. And most importantly, I think focus on tactics. There's history that's, that's, uh, it's, it's, it's part of like the storytelling, but it really is about like, what are the tactics that it's going to take in these different regions and how does it overlap with other, you know, other regions and what are the patterns? That's what we try to provide. So if you are not already checking out the committee program, go check it out Monday, 3 p.m. Eastern. And of course, if you are not already a patron, join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. It's how we keep these purple lights on. (laughs) That's how we do it. It's how we uh, keep the power on when like, you know, there isn't like some sort of power surge because of the heat, uh, the Wi-Fi on. It's how we make sure to keep the show going when I'm on the road, when others are on the road. And of course, when it runs on the road, it runs always on the road for the committee program. Uh, but way more than me. I stay situated. He's just like every week in a new place. I stay situated and then I go somewhere else. But we love you. We're appreciative. Have a great weekend. And as always, stay in solidarity. The Low Mickey Show.
backlash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show. Thank <laughs> you.